I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are the prosecutors. Today on The Prosecutors, we conclude our investigation into the Jeffrey McDonald case. Everybody and welcome to this episode of The Prosecutors. I'm Brett, and I'm joined, as always, with my engaging co-host, Alice. Hi, Brett. Thanks. I don't know if I am, but we did have an amazing time engaging with our Patreons on our Get Vocal last night. It was terrific. Those of you who miss out on that because you're not patrons, it is awesome. It's great to be able to talk to folks answer questions, and just have a good time. We do. We have a great time hanging out with folks. Really enjoy it. We do those basically every month. So if you are interested in taking part in our exclusive Patreon-only Get Vocals, sign up on our Patreon page, and you can join us next month. Okay, Alice, I think that's enough. That's enough of the business, as the captain would say. I think it's time for us to dive back into McDonald and and finish this case off today by talking about the evidence against Dr. McDonald. Last week, we talked about the evidence against the hippies, the hippies that McDonald identified as the people who were responsible for his family's murder. Today, we're going to look at the other side of the case. We're going to look at the case that was presented by the government the case against Jeffrey McDonald. And then at the end, we're going to give you our conclusions and we're going to ask you for yours. So we're interested to hear what all you guys think. So let's start with the weapons in this case. Remember the story that Helena Stokely told was that she and her compatriots went to McDonald's house with the plan to murder the family as part of this sort of satanic ritual that they were a part of or at least to shake the doctor down for drugs. And you might think that they would take some weapons with them. But in fact, they did not. A club, two knives, and an ice pick were used to murder the family. All of these items came from the house. Also, the club that was used in the crime came from the bedroom. The knives and the ice pick came from the kitchen. So I want you to stop and think about this for a second. There's two things. Number one, you have to believe that this group of people broke into this house, a house that they knew a Green Beret lived in with no weapons, intending to commit this crime. But perhaps even more striking, you have to believe that these at least six people, because remember, there are four people in the room with Jeffrey McDonald and at least two people in the bedroom with Colette based on what he says, and then maybe someone in the children's room, but at least six people broke in, quietly gathered these weapons without anyone noticing, including a random piece of wood from the bedroom because that's the club. It's not a baseball bat. It's a piece of wood 
from one of the bedrooms and then attacked. Moreover, the ice pick is problematic because McDonald claimed he'd never seen an ice pick in the home, and yet two different witnesses testified that they had used an ice pick to get frozen food from the family's freezer. And finally, all of these weapons were found in the backyard of the home, not far from the back door, which makes you wonder if they were sort of casually tossed outside when the murders were complete. Yeah, but we don't often see break-ins into homes where people know there are people inside with the intent to commit either an assault or a murder with absolutely no weapons. At the very least, some sort of crowbar or something to help break into the house because you might get lucky and a door or window is unlocked. But if your intention is to break in and commit a murder or an assault, you're probably not just going to walk up with no way, no weapon to get into the house, much less no weapons to commit those assaults or murders. And I'm trying to imagine these six hippies high out of their mind on LSD and mescaline, quietly creeping through the house to the kitchen and getting these you know, knives together out of the, the drawer, which they somehow find, and then finding this piece of wood and then attacking. I mean, it's, it's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. And it's one reason. And we talk about circumstantial evidence a lot. This is very circumstantial, right? It's not a piece of evidence that McDonald killed his family. It's not a piece of physical evidence. It's not a witness. But it is something about the murder that tells you something about how the murder was committed. And given that, as we've said before, there are only two choices here. Either McDonald did it or the hippies did it. If you believe the hippies did it, you have to believe that something like that happened. And just think about how absurd that is. That's the kind of thing that, that can evaporate reasonable doubt fairly quickly, particularly in a case like this where there really are only two choices. Now, Brett, before we move on, I just got to tell you, today was one of those days where I was cutting it close every minute of the day. I was right on time, but barely to drop off my child at school, got to my meeting right on time, had meetings all day and just could barely get home in time to let the sitter off. And I could barely wrap my head around cooking a meal for my family. But thank goodness for HelloFresh. Tonight I got home, I had a package um, to cook the firecracker meatballs. It was so easy to make and my family gobbled it up. I thought there would be leftovers and there were none. Thank goodness for HelloFresh. Now HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. And HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items each week including ready-to-eat salads, sandwiches, and soups. This is such a great value because HelloFresh is 28% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store and 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal without sacrificing the quality. Those of you who know us know that Green Chef is also one of our sponsors. Well, guess what? Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh. And with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. I love switching between HelloFresh and Green Chef and now 
all of you can enjoy both brands at a discount on us. So go to HelloFresh.com slash TP14 and use code TP14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Go to HelloFresh.com slash TP14 and use code TP14 for up to 14 free meals. Find out for yourself why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Now let's talk about the pajama top. McDonald's pajamas, and indeed the pajamas of all the family, had holes consistent with an ice pick in them. But when reviewed under a microscope, the holes on McDonald's top were almost perfectly round. They had no ragged edges. They were not torn. And it's almost impossible to believe that this could have happened if the top were moving when it was punctured. And recall the story that McDonald has told us. He's told us that he was in a fight with one of these hippies a fight to the death, and the hippie has this ice pick, and he's attacking McDonald, and the pajama top is wrapped around his hands, and he's deflecting the ice pick. There's no way that the ice pick would make perfectly round holes in that circumstance. It would tear the pajama top, and incidentally, McDonald would probably also have wounds on his hands where the ice pick grazed his hands as he's engaged in this battle, which he did not have. And it makes you wonder if, in fact, the pajama top was not moving when the ice pick was plunged through it, and if, in fact, the ice pick punctures, particularly in the body of Colette, may have happened after the attack that killed them. You know, something may look like something to your naked eye, but as soon as you start looking at the fibers, it tells you a lot more about how those fibers were broken or cut. And let's talk about those pajama top fibers. McDonald claimed that his pajama top was ripped in a desperate struggle in the living room against the men who had come to kill his family. And indeed, his pajama top was ripped. And fibers from the ripped top were found in various places around the house. All except in the one place you might expect them to be based on his story the living room. If that's where the struggle was, you would think there'd be shreds or fibers of the pajama top there, but that's not where they were. And while there were no fibers where they should have been, there were fibers all over the house where they should not have been. This is particularly strange since McDonald himself claims that he was not wearing his pajama top when he found his wife and daughters murdered, yet his pajama top fibers are found in their rooms. Let's talk about what was found exactly. In the master bedroom, there were a total of 79 fibers. When we're talking about fibers, he may not be have been able to see them with his naked eye to be able to clean the crime scene if it were, in fact, him, right? So what these fibers tell us, since they're very small, they had to be forensically found and analyzed, is that they are kind of this roadmap of where McDonald's pajama top, assuming it's on his body, has been. So where McDonald has been. So 22 pajama fibers were found on the top sheet of the master bed. 
Six pajama fibers were found on top of the pillow. 24 pajama fibers were found under Colette's body. Three fibers were found near the left corner of the footboard of their bed. One fiber was found near the headboard. And 23 fibers were found on the floor near Colette's body. So in other words, of the 79 fibers found in the master bedroom, about two-thirds of the fibers were found under or right around Colette's body. And, and that, that tells you a lot, right? Because once again, McDonald's saying this was ripped in the living room. You would expect the most fibers would be found wherever the rip occurred. So just imagine you want to try and give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well, maybe it was ripped and the murderer sort of carried these fibers into the bedroom when he went in there to kill Colette. Maybe, but if the murderer has that many fibers on him, you would expect there to be more fibers in the living room, and and yet there are none. And this is not typical fiber evidence. I mean, a lot of people are like, will tell you that fiber evidence is not very reliable. When you're comparing one fiber to another, that might be true because Fibers are used in, you know, you everybody gets the same shirt from the same Walmart. All the fibers are going to be the same. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. We know where these fibers came from. They came from the pajama top. We can figure out where that pajama top was ripped based on where most of the fibers were. The vast majority of them are in that bedroom, like Alice said, around Colette's body. And what that tells you, Colette ripped that pajama top not some mysterious murderer. It was Colette. And when she did that, you had the fibers that fell down to the ground and eventually her body fell on top of many of those fibers, though obviously not all of them. Right. And now let's talk about the daughters. Because remember, McDonald claims that he wasn't wearing any pajama top when he found Colette or his daughters. We've already established that around Colette's bodies are a lot of fibers. What about the daughters? So in Kimberly's room, there were 19 total fibers from McDonald's pajama top. 14 threads were found under Kimberly's bed covers. A 20 and a half inch yarn was found on top of Kimberly's pillow. One yarn was found under Kimberly's pillow and three yarns were found on top of Kimberly's bed. In other words, these 19 fibers were not kind of fallen on top of Kimberly's bed. They were all kind of in crevices underneath her body in places that would be very difficult for them to have just accidentally fallen onto. He was very engaged with Kimberly to the point where there are fibers under her and under her pillow. And this strongly supports the prosecution's theory that McDonald moved her and put her in that bed. And that's why you see these fibers in various places. Even if McDonald had some fibers on top of him when he went in to see Kimberly, and even if he did try and perform some sort of CPR, though very unusual that he would do that in her bed and then leave her covered up afterwards, you would not expect to see all of these fibers in the various places. You see them, and yet you do. And now there were also a few fibers in Kristen's bedroom, but the most notable was that there was one fiber from his pajama top underneath Kristen's fingernail. Now that's interesting because, as you know, when there's a struggle for someone's life, you'll often find the perpetrator's DNA or pieces of their clothing underneath the fingernails of the victim because typically we fight back with our hands. 
And in episode one, we told you that McDonald was convicted of second degree murder for his wife and Kimberly and first degree murder for his youngest daughter. The general theory is that the first two murders were committed sort of in the heat of passion. And then McDonald decided to kill his youngest daughter for whatever reason, either because she witnessed part of this or because he needed to kill her to make this look like the kind of murder he was going to describe, which is why that is first-degree murder, because it wasn't heat of passion. It was the decision he made. There are defensive wounds on the youngest daughter's hands, which do indicate that she fought back as whoever, possibly her own father, murdered her. So let's talk about the blood. We've already followed the pajama top all over the house. The blood also tells the same story. Blood was everywhere in this house. But interestingly, each member of the family had a different blood type. I'm actually not even sure how this is possible. I would, I would like somebody who knows more about blood than I do to tell me that because I, I didn't realize that was possible. I thought, I thought all the kids had to have the blood type of either one of their parents or both of their parents combined, but I guess not. So assuming no other blood was introduced into the house, where that blood type was found corresponds to where the people would have been at some point in time bleeding. Now, some people challenge that first assumption, noting that if there were intruders, at this point six or more, it is possible that they could have been bleeding when they entered the home or as a result of this struggle with McDonald and thrown off the scent. Hold that in the back of your mind while we lay out where the blood was found. Let's start with Kimberly's blood. McDonald says that when he was attacked, he could see Colette in the master bedroom and he could hear the girls crying for help from their own bedrooms. He also says that he found the girls dead in their beds. And yet, blood from Kimberly, so the same blood type as Kimberly, was found on the master bedroom rug, on the bath mat that McDonald said he placed on Colette's body, a sheet from the master bedroom, on the wooden club, remember, one of the main mur murder weapons in this case, and on the pajama top, McDonald said he was not wearing when he found Kimberly dead in her bed. Her blood was also found in the hallway, and cast-off was found on the wall of her bedroom. We've talked about cast off before when we talked about the Michael Peterson case. Essentially, when you are beating someone to death, every time you bring the weapon back, if there's blood on the weapon, it's going to be, quote unquote, cast off onto the wall. We see that blood on the wall of her bedroom. All of this blood supports the theory that McDonald had struck Kimberly in the master bedroom, carried her body back to her bedroom, put her in bed, and then attacked her again to sort of make it appear that she had been murdered in her room. Let's talk about Colette's blood. Colette's blood was found in the master bedroom, which is consistent with McDonald's story. That's where you would expect to find Colette's blood, but it was also found on the top and bottom sheet of Kristen's bedspread, the youngest daughter. Mixed with Kristen's blood in her own room and on the master bedspread found wrapped in a sheet in the master bedroom. It was also found in a footprint of McDonald's leaving Kristen's room. 
This supported the prosecution's theory that after McDonald had initially struck Colette and moved on to finish off Kimberly, Colette regained consciousness. Yesterday, in our conversation that we had on that, on that Get Vocal, Alice talked about how hard it is to kill somebody, and it is. And oftentimes, people will think they have killed someone, and they have not. It appears that Colette regained consciousness, and in just, I mean, just imagine how tragic this is, goes to her youngest daughter's room to try and protect her. And that's where McDonald finds her, and that's where he finishes her off. He then carries her back into the master bedroom, leaving that bloody footprint in her blood in, in his youngest daughter's room, places her on the floor on top of those fibers from the pajama top that we talked about earlier. You know, earlier, Brett, I, I noted how the pajama top fibers was kind of a roadmap around the house of where McDonald had been. And here with the different blood types, it's like a roadmap of where each individual person, Colette and the two daughters, are throughout the house. And it's fascinating to be able to see their trail through their blood type. Yeah, and it continues. You have Kristen's blood. Kristen's blood was found mixed with her mother's on her bed. Once again, shouldn't have been there. It was also found on the floor, which is not that unexpected. As we talked about earlier, if McDonald killed her, it was to cover up the crime. It wasn't in a fit of rage. Interestingly, her blood was also found on McDonald's glasses, glasses that he said he had not been wearing at the time of the attack and glasses that were found in the living room. And her blood was also found somewhere else. It shouldn't have been. It, along with Colette's blood, was found on a page of the Esquire magazine that we have talked about before in the living room, the one that contained the story about the Manson's murders the story that bore an eerie resemblance to what had supposedly happened to the family, which tells you the last thing that McDonald did. After he had murdered his entire family, he picked up that magazine, put on his glasses so he could read it, the story that had struck him earlier in the week, and read about the Manson murders, and then used that as a template for the story that he would tell later. Now, we mentioned before, some people say, well, maybe one of the murderers had the same blood type as the victims, and that's why you see blood where you shouldn't. I think we've just laid out for you why that theory does not hold water. It's not just one blood type that's in a place it shouldn't be. It's everyone's blood type is in a place it shouldn't be. So unless you had a bunch of murderers who also all happen to be bleeding severely, and also having to be spreading that blood in the exact places it would need to be, that's just not going to work. And I know, you know, we had a conversation previously with Maggie and Women in Crime um, about this, and they they brought up a good point. They said, this trail of following the blood is only following the blood type. It's not following the DNA. And that's why the argument that Brett is bringing up, it has some sway with people. They think, well, it's just blood type. So if someone else has the same blood type, then unlike DNA, no one else has your same DNA. A lot of people can be type A, you know, A positive, B, O, what have you. There are only so many types of blood. But DNA analysis was in fact done. It wasn't done until many decades later, but in 2006, DNA analysis was done of the evidence in the McDonald murders. And guess what? 
None of the items tested matched either Helena Stokely or Greg Mitchell. We've talked about this. Murders are very messy. It would be near impossible to carry out such a gruesome, bloody murder of three people and an attempted murder of one, that being McDonald, and not leave behind a single trace of yourself if you were the perpetrator. There was one hair in Colette's hand, as was a splinter of the club used to kill her. The hair was tested and it matched Jeffrey McDonald. If you have been saying following the blood type around the house is not enough because it's not DNA, that is incredibly powerful. Jeffrey McDonald's hair was in Colette's hand. No DNA matched any of the hippies who were supposedly in the house. The story that McDonald told was that his youngest daughter, Kristen, had wet the bed. And what do you expect if someone had wet the bed? A urine stain. But the urine stain was consistent with Kimberly, not Kristen. So it's possible that McDonald was attempting to account for any evidence tied to Kristen by claiming that he had taken her to bed that night. So his story just doesn't make sense in multiple ways. Yeah, I mean, these are his own words. And they are, this is the story that he has told since a couple weeks after this happened. He told this story. You know, he didn't he didn't know how all this evidence was gonna shake out, but this is the story he told. And I mean, I don't know about you, Alice, but I don't think even if somebody had bashed me on the head, I wouldn't mix up my, you know, six year old and my two year old or whatever. <laughs> I would remember which which child it was I carried to her bed the day that my family was massacred. And I think this was an attempt by McDonald to to cover for if there was evidence found that shouldn't be there with Kristen, well, I carried her to, to her bed. And that's that's why that happened. Just like the story of him sort of wandering around after the murder, checking on the girls, checking on his wife, going into the bathroom, all that sort of weirdness that didn't really make any sense. He's trying to account for any evidence he left behind. And let's talk about the motive. Nothing was missing from the house. Now, McDonald had a lot of drugs, too, but none of those were stolen. You would think that if a group of hippies who who broke in in order to try and convince a doctor to either give them drugs or treat them for addiction would want those drugs, right? It would be too tempting to have all these drugs there and not take them. But none of those drugs were stolen. And nothing was vandalized in the house. This was not a break-in to steal things. The only thing that showed anyone had been there was the word pig written on the headboard. That's the only thing that was disturbed in the house. Things were not t- things of value were not taken. Things of sentimental value were not taken. Helena Stokely would later describe this as some sort of drug-fueled satanic sacrifice. But if that were true, why did no one bring any weapons to do the satanic sacrifice? It's like the world's least effective satanic sacrifice if you come with no weapons. Yeah, I mean, one of two things is true here, right? Either Helena Stokely's satanic sacrifice story is right. I mean, you're assuming the hippies did it. Or they came for drugs, but there were no drugs stolen. So if they came for drugs, why didn't they take the drugs? And if they came there for the satanic sacrifice, why didn't they bring any weapons? I mean, it just, it it doesn't actually make any sense once you start to think about the story that you've been told, particularly given the evidence that you're seeing. 
Hey, Brett, before we move on, I am so excited to introduce our newest sponsor, Warby Parker. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Now, as a lifetime wearer of glasses and contact lenses, This is so exciting to me because glasses start at just $95. That's including prescription lenses. Now, sunglasses, progressives, and blue light lenses are also available. It's amazing how much you can customize these glasses. What is so unique about Warby Parker is they allow you to take this quiz online. It took me just a few minutes to answer some questions so they knew what I was looking for in my eyewear. And after I finished picking my five try-on glasses, they sent me a home try-on kit for free. These glasses were delivered within a couple of days, and I was able to try on five pairs of glasses, feel them for myself, see how they looked on my face, and I even got to do a fashion show for my husband who got to pick his favorite glasses as well. I was so impressed with the quality of each of the glasses. As you all know, I have young children. These were nice, sturdy lenses and frames that I knew could withstand even the most um, active toddlers. And all I had to do once I tried them on and knew how they looked, put them back in the box that they came in, and I could send it off with the label that it came with, and it was so easy. So see what I'm talking about. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash And what's great about it, Warby Parker also has an app you can download on your phone where you can try on glasses virtually and you can see realistic color, texture, and size of each style just by using your phone. So go try this out at warbyparker.com slash TP. So let's talk about the injuries. So Colette McDonald, and this is from medical reports, and I think these just speak for themselves. Colette McDonald, as described in medical reports and listed on one of the websites we're going to link to, mcdonaldcasefacts.com. She was struck at least six times in the head with a blunt object, resulting in lacerations to her right temple, left temple, forehead, and on top of her head, causing a small fracture in the midline portion of Colette's skull. All of these lacerations were deep enough to expose bone. This is a vicious beating. Two blows under her chin resulting in extensive bruising to the left front chin area and the right front chin area. Defensive wounds on her arms. Colette's right wrist was broken and the inner aspect of her upper arms bore extensive bruises and abrasions. The fingers and hand of her right arm had extensive black and blue marks associated with abrasions. Her left arm was also fractured in two places. She sustained nine deep knife wounds at the front of her neck, seven deep knife wounds on her chest, and 21 puncture wounds to her chest area. Her trachea was severed in two places. 
Her chest also bore a pattern bruise, which indicated she had been struck at arm's length by a bayonet-type thrust with the end of a blunt object. So, brutally attacked and murdered. Kimberly McDonald. Kimberly was struck at least three times in the head with a blunt object. Her right cheek, right ear, and right mastoid area had overlapping black and blue marks and irregular abrasions. Her right eye was recessed, and she had a fractured nose, which was deviated to the right. Her left cheekbone was fractured, and a piece of the cheekbone was protruding through the skin. Her skull showed multiple fractures, and the dome portion of her skull was fractured through its entire thickness and slightly dislocated. Eight to ten deep knife wounds were found on the right side of her neck. The reason it's eight to ten is she was so brutally murdered, they couldn't count the number of knife wounds to a precise number. Once again, brutally murdered. No, I mean... As you're reading, as you're reading these, you know, telling us about these injuries, it is, it's horrific. And it is very difficult to inflict these types of wounds on someone. It takes time and it takes a lot of sustained force. Your cheek doesn't just start protruding. Your eye doesn't just become recessed. So keep this in mind. This isn't just, this can't happen in a one swing of the bat. This is a repeated attack. And it continues. Kristen McDonald. Kristen sustained 12 gaping knife wounds to her upper back, four wounds to her chest, and one wound to the neck. Two of the wounds to her back penetrated her heart, causing massive internal bleeding. Fifteen shallow puncture wounds were found in her chest, as well as multiple cuts on both of her hands. There was a through-and-through laceration of the skin involving the middle of the right ring finger. The laceration was deep enough to expose bone, and the index finger of the right hand revealed a triangular flap of skin. So, I mean, this is a two-year-old girl who was brutally murdered, and Colette McDonald obviously fought for her children, and even and Kristen fought for her life. But, you know, Kristen's a baby, essentially. Kimberly's not much older. Colette's not going to be able to fight. But whoever killed them attacked them with a brutality and a viciousness that was intended to ensure that they were going to die. And then you have Jeffrey McDonald. Think about this. They're all in the same house. If you have one attacker coming in, you expect the wounds to be similar, at least in their severity. And the three that we just talked about, the severity of their wounds, I say, would be quite matched with Colette probably having the worst, but likely it was because she was beat more than once. But there's Jeffrey McDonald. Let's talk about what he suffered. He had a bruise on the forehead with moderate swelling, but no broken skin. A superficial laceration of the upper left arm, a superficial laceration of the upper left abdomen, four to five small marks near the left nipple, a small puncture wound in the lower right anterior chest, and it was this last wound that caused his collapsed lung. It was the only wound that required suturing. So the other lacerations, even though they're called lacerations, they're superficial. Think like, not quite, maybe a little bit more, but like a paper cut, right? You don't need to sew up a paper cut. So none of the other wounds required any sort of stitches. 
The doctor recorded that the injury would have been caused by a small tapered blade and described it as a symmetrical, one-centimeter, neat, clean stab wound. He had no ice pick wounds on his hands and no serious trauma to his head. So think about this. Think about how messy the injuries were to Kristen, Kimberly, and Colette. The most serious injury to Jeffrey McDonald was a clean stab wound. When you say clean stab wound, it means someone who is not moving. It's not messy. It's not jagged. It's essentially, if you can think of like Play-Doh in front of you and you just stab a knife straight in, straight out, it's a very clean cut. That's kind of what the doctor is describing here. And remember how he said he got it. He said he got it when the guy was punching him in the chest and it hurt like hell. And that's, you know, later on he realized he wasn't punching him. He was stabbing him. Like we're supposed to believe that, that one of the people who would go on to murder his family in this vicious, violent way stabbed him once in the chest with a, you know, one centimeter neat, clean stab wound. And it also doesn't fit because he punched him multiple times. Why didn't he stab him multiple times? Like his story just doesn't fit with what we're seeing. Especially when you see multiple stab wounds in the other people, right? Kristen had 12 gaping uh, stab wounds. Kimberly had eight to 10 deep knife wounds. You know, her, her face was so mangled, you couldn't even tell how many, but we're talking in the double digits, most likely. Colette suffered, you know, blows and 21 puncture wounds to her chest. I mean, we are talking double digit puncture wounds for all of the other members of the family, but he has one clean stab wound. Now, some people still try to claim that McDonald's injuries were serious and that, in fact, a collapsed lung could have killed him. Now, this is true to an extent. According to the medical reports, McDonald had what is called a 20% pneumothorax. Anything less than 38% is considered a mild collapse. We found a study of stab wounds to the chest. Don't go look at studies for stab wounds to the chest. It's very sad. Let us just do the research for you. And of those stab wounds in the study, only 1% had pneumothorax of 20% or less. In other words, it's very rare to have such a mild collapse. Although McDonald was treated with a chest tube, his injury was on the cusp of requiring only observation. So I can imagine that the doctors, seeing how gruesome all of the other injuries were for the other three members of the family, may have jumped on top of giving him the most extensive treatment, not knowing how extensive his injuries were, but maybe grouping him in with them, thinking that his wounds were going to be as serious as theirs. And I'm not saying the collapsed lung isn't serious. My... Dad had a collapsed lung one time. He uh, he had had a, a procedure, and they sort of nicked his lung <laughs> while they were doing that procedure Oof. and didn't realize they had done that. And the next day, he goes for a walk, and he can't really breathe, and it turns out he has 100% collapsed lung. When I was looking up information about this, I found a story from Chillicothe County in Ohio, which I thought was great, and I'll read, I'll read it to you. After the 4x400-meter relay, he looked bad, said Jamie. One boy even said that he wasn't the Tucker they were used to running against. Tucker knew something wasn't right. It felt like someone was sitting on my chest, said Tucker. I thought it was my heart or rib issue. I didn't want to make excuses, though, and didn't say anything to coach right away. Well, it turns out Tucker had a 100% collapsed lung. 
he ran a four by 400 meter race with, with that injury. So like I said, I'm not saying a clamps lung isn't serious, but Jeffrey McDonald makes you think that he was on death's door with his collapsed lung. And this was a super serious injury. And anybody who says that he didn't have life threatening injuries, is just crazy. But no, his injury was nothing, nothing like what his family suffered. And he is the most dangerous person in that household. If you're going to make sure somebody's not going to get up so you can do whatever you came there to do, it's going to be him. It's going to be the guy with military training. It's not going to be the two-year-old. And yet, this is, this is his injury. And remember his story. We just talked about this, but remember this. It's important. He says he's being punched in the chest by one of the men, and he kept thinking how hard that guy punched. And he was punched many times before he noticed that this guy was holding a blade. So is that how he got this injury? where he was being punched in the chest? And if that's true, why is it so shallow? Why isn't he dead? Why is there only one injury? And the knife, presumably, the knife that this guy was using is the same knife that came from his household. This injury doesn't match the knife wounds that we find on the the other women in this house. Jeffrey McDonald was stabbed by a scalpel. It's obvious. If you just read the way the the injury is described he was stabbed by a scalpel not a knife not a not a not one of these knives that were used to attack his family and i think it's pretty clear who did the stabbing jeffrey mcdonald did this to himself he knew he had to have an injury he couldn't walk out of that house with his family massacred and him not have anything wrong with him so he had to do this frankly i don't even think he intended to collapse his lung partially. I think that was purely accidental, but he had to have a stab wound, and so that's what he did. Yeah, it's so stark when you hear McDonald's injuries next to the injuries of his wife and daughters. Were there mistakes done by the investigators? Let's talk about that. The CID, the the military investigators, certainly messed some things up. With a crime this messy... It's almost impossible not to have some missteps, to be honest, especially when you have a police force that doesn't usually um, investigate murders, much less a triple murder. And so McDonald has pointed to that for years to try and undermine the prosecution. When he had called, CID hung up the phone. McDonald's pajama bottoms were disposed of at some point. That's evidence that was disposed of. An ambulance driver stole McDonald's wallet. A flower pot that had tipped over was righted. Too many CID personnel were in the house. A bloody footprint of McDonald's was not properly collected. This is what he's complaining about. And it's hard to understand why any of this matters. You can cherry pick complaints about any sort of investigation. But Assume then that at least some of the evidence could have been altered by CID, but so much of it couldn't have been. And we've just given you evidence upon evidence of, you know, whether it was messed up by CID or not, they couldn't have messed up all of that. How, for instance, could CID's missteps account for the fact that no pajama fibers were found in the living room where McDonald was attacked? Was CID thorough everywhere else but there? They were able to find the one fiber under Kristen's fingernail, but not one fiber in the living room where they were told the attack happened with McDonald. Now, remember, there's no reason at all to think that CID would want to railroad McDonald. 
he's one of their own. If anything, they would have assumed from the beginning that these hated hippies were actually the ones responsible. Moreover, even if some of the pajama fibers were spread by CID or through contact with McDonald somehow, how did they get underneath Colette? CID couldn't have put fibers underneath Colette. McDonald told officers that he did not move her. Neither did anyone else until her body was removed from the scene. At some point, CID had finally locked down the site and put into place important scene-preserving steps. So if McDonald told officers he didn't move Colette and CID didn't move Colette until the very end, there's no way that someone could have contaminated the scene under Colette. Rather, those fibers were under Colette to begin with. And I think, look, this is important. And I think this is the kind of thing you can take with you in any case. Every person who's ever been convicted of anything and claimed they were innocent is going to say the police messed it up. And there are always, always, always going to be mistakes at a crime scene. It's going to happen. Everybody's human. They're all making mistakes. You're trying to lock down the scene, but mistakes are going to be made. And the question is, do those mistakes either undermine proof of innocence or create proof of guilt? Do they destroy something you need to see? I mean, that kind of thing, right? That's what you're looking for when you're looking for mistakes. It's not just, there was a mistake. Therefore, he's innocent. That's not how it works. You know, we talked about Michael Peterson in the dried blood and the fact that the police did not include that in their report. That's important. That's a really important thing because if the blood's dry, we need to know. And that is a mistake that just makes you think, man, I just don't know. Was it dry? Was it not dry? Right? But if the police had like, you know, forgot to mention there was a wine bottle on the the kitchen counter, okay, well, that's somewhat important because he said they drank wine, so yeah. But if they had recorded that the blood was dried right underneath that, then you're kind of like, well, the wine doesn't really matter because we got the dried blood and that tells us the story. Very similar here. You have to look at the mistakes. You have to look at the evidence you still have. You can't just say, well, CID made mistakes, so there's reasonable doubt. No, no, that's not how it works. And, and we're not done talking about this. How would CID have been responsible for the fact that the ice pick holes in McDonald's pajama top match up perfectly with the holes in Colette's chest? How could CID have been responsible for those holes having no rips or tears despite McDonald's claim that the garment was constantly in motion while he was being struck? CID couldn't have done that. The only person who could have done that is McDonald when he put the pajama top on Colette's chest and stabbed her with the ice pick through the pajama top. That's what created those holes. That's why they match up with her chest. And what about the tears on the pajama top? How is it possible for the pocket to have been stained with Colette's blood top before it was torn? Something readily apparent to anyone viewing the torn garment under a microscope. If you look at it, you can tell that the blood was already on the shirt when that that pocket was torn off. How was that possible? McDonald says that all of this tearing was happening in the living room, where, by the way, there are no pajama shards. No, no evidence whatsoever that his pajama was torn there. And yet, when you look at the pajama top, you can tell that Colette's blood was already on it when it was torn. And if the assailants, let me go back to the blood top, 
imagine, okay, say, well, you know, we don't know it's Colette's blood. All we know is Colette's blood type. So maybe one of the assailants had Colette's blood type on them. Assume that's true. If they had Colette's blood type and they were bleeding while fighting McDonald and that got on that pocket, how is it that none of Colette's blood, none of the blood of that blood type is found in the living room? Did CID do that too? Did they somehow erase the existence of blood from the living room? And if that happened, why was the pajama pocket found in the bedroom and not in the living room? How is it possible for that pajama pocket to have the blood on it, to get ripped off in the living room, and then appear as if miraculously in the bedroom? Maybe it's more consistent with the fact that the fight happened in the bedroom where the fibers are found and where the blood is found. Did CID cause the massive difference in injuries that we just talked about between McDonald and his family? Did CID stain McDonald's eyeglasses, which he claimed he wasn't wearing at the time of the attack? Not surprising, given that he claimed he was asleep when the attack begun, it would have been surprised if he'd had his glasses on, and yet they had blood on them. And not his blood, or even Colette's blood, but Kristen's blood. Blood that should not, it should not have been possible for him to have that blood on his eyeglasses. Yeah, you know, sometimes there's contamination of the crime scene, but not complete altering of every piece of evidence within the crime scene. It would actually be difficult for all of this to be a mess up. Let's talk about more things that would have been difficult for CID to mess up. How would CID have been able to place a bloody footprint of McDonald's in Kristen's room and one not of Kristen's blood, but Colette's? So you'd have to think somehow they got McDonald's shoe somehow was able to dip it in oh, Colette's blood. They would have had to have like chopped off his foot and like <laughs> and put his foot in the blood. Okay, there you go. Chopped off his foot, dipped it in Colette's blood, somehow contaminated that way, and then placed it in Kristen's room. I mean, he is there talking to them when they arrive. How did Colette's blood get into Kristen's room? McDonald claimed he probably stepped in her blood when leaving the bedroom, but there are no bloody footprints entering Kristen's room, only leaving it. Could it possibly be Ogham's razor? The most likely scenario that McDonald found Colette in Kristen's room after the massacre had begun, and he was surprised because he thought Colette was dead, and in fact, Colette had run to protect Kristen, and when McDonald found Colette there, he killed her there before carrying Colette's body into the master bedroom to make it appear that Colette had died in the master bedroom. You have to twist a lot of facts to make that not the case. Now, did CID fake McDonald's blood in front of the kitchen sink where the latex gloves just so happened to be? Gloves that match the latex of the fragments of gloves found in the master bedroom. Gloves used to write pig on the headboard. I mean, why would drugged up hippies even think to use latex gloves for such a, a, a purpose? So we've laid out a lot of incredulous you know, how could CID have messed up? Because so many people point to the CID not doing a good investigation or any mistakes they could have made to explain away the mountain of evidence that is piled against McDonald. And it's just not believable. Yeah, it's not believable. And I think you have to do that kind of critical analysis when you're thinking about this. Whenever you have a claim of wrongful conviction and somebody wants to say it's the cop's fault, Maybe it is. It happens. We've talked about cases where it happened. But 
you got to look at the actual evidence. You can't just assume because somebody did something wrong that that means the guy's innocent. We can never know what happened, and we can never have any certainty beyond a reasonable doubt. No, no, the evidence is still there. And ask yourself, could the evidence that you're seeing be the result of, of what the police were doing? And if it's not, that's not reasonable doubt. That is not reasonable doubt, even if the police were messing things up. And it's really interesting, this case, because this attack worked on the military. The military initial tribunal that was held, this worked. This was the attack. CID messed a bunch of stuff up. And the colonel, who probably had dealt with CID before and maybe didn't have that high an opinion of them, was like, yeah, they messed up. Can't convict this guy. We should look somewhere else, right? But once the civilian authorities got a hold of this and and prosecuted this case, they recognized that, no, these mistakes, while they exist and while the defense certainly can raise them, don't go to the evidence that we are pointing to. You can talk about you can talk about the fact they hung up the phone and righted the flower pot all day long. That doesn't put Colette's blood in Kristen's bedroom. It just doesn't. That's not what was going on here. And it it's just it's worth going through this sort of exercise. Could CID be responsible for all this? And I think it's pretty obvious they could not. Before we move on, we are excited to welcome another new sponsor. Pill Pack by Amazon Pharmacy. You know how busy all of us are, and waiting in line at the pharmacy is just such a chore. Well, now you no longer have to do that. With the ease of Amazon Pharmacy that saves you time, easily works with your doctor, and delivers medication right to your door. So there's no more waiting in line at the pharmacy. You can choose between 30 and 90 day supplies. And if you're a Prime member, then you can get six months worth of prescription medication. It saves you money because comparing your medication prices with and without insurance is fast and easy. Prime members can get meds for as low as $1 a month when paying without insurance. And it's so easy because you can have your doctor's office send your next prescription straight to Amazon Pharmacy so you don't even have to worry about getting the prescription from your doctor and going into a pharmacy and waiting in line. And here's what's so great. Amazon Pharmacy works with most insurance plans nationwide. Wide. And if you're an Amazon Prime member like me, you get free two day delivery and save on prescription medication even when you're paying without insurance. Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medication when not using insurance. With medication as low as a dollar a month plus free two day delivery. Learn more at Amazon.com slash TPRX. That's Amazon dot com slash tprx amazon.com slash tprx and see for yourself how convenient amazon pharmacy is now one thing i think is fascinating about this case mcdonald has claimed for 40 years now that he is the victim of a wrongful conviction and we've talked about wrongful convictions a lot and i think it's worth asking whether or not he fits the profile for a wrongful conviction. Does he bear any of the markers that we see in wrongful convictions? I think number one, McDonald is not the type of person you would expect to endure a wrongful conviction. As Alice said earlier, the hippies were disliked around Fort Bragg. People around Fort Bragg did not like them. 
They were the other. They were the people nobody wanted to associate with. If somebody was going to be framed for a crime, it was them. It wasn't the Golden Boy Surgeon Green Beret. That was not going to. That was not the guy who was going to be framed. We talked about this some um, with Women in Crime and Maggie when we appeared on Maggie's show. And Women in Crime they pointed out that about I think they said about twenty percent when you look at wrongful convictions are sort of people you wouldn't expect. So wealthy, white, that sort of thing. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that McDonald would would be a wrongful conviction, but I think it goes beyond just as demographics. There's also certain markers I think you tend to see when you look at these cases. You tend to see things like questionable eyewitnesses. You tend to see things like jailhouse informants who have a lot to gain from pointing the finger at somebody else. You tend to see things like weak physical evidence or absent physical evidence altogether where the case really is based on that person who saw the murder from across the street and is claiming they know exactly who it was. Those are the kinds of things you see in wrongful convictions. And you don't have any of that here. The only way you would have had that is if Helena Stokely had been convicted of this case. Helena Stokely is the person who, if you looked at her and you saw a wrongful conviction, you would see all the things line up. A member of a group that people don't like, somebody who... You have some eyewitnesses, questionable eyewitnesses, who may or may not have seen her in the area. You have no physical evidence whatsoever about her. You have people who want to say that she confessed, who are clearly lying, who we know are lying. Helena Stokely, to me, is a victim in this. She's the fifth victim of Jeffrey McDonald. And it's one reason this case makes me so angry is because Jeffrey McDonald didn't just kill his family, and he did kill his family. He also caused this woman, who was already struggling with mental illness and drug addiction, to spend the rest of her life questioning whether or not she was involved in the murder of innocent people, including two children, to the point that she eventually died alone in a hotel room with her, her baby in the crib, and thank God they found the baby before the baby died. I mean, it's, it's an absolute tragedy, and I, I don't think I have to share my opinion on this case. I think it's patently obvious what happened here. I think Jeffrey McDonald is a monster. I think he is an evil person. I think he is, you can call him a psychopath if you want to. I don't know if he is. I'm not trained to make those diagnoses, diagnoses. but there are a few people in true crime that I think are worse than Jeffrey McDonald, and I'm glad that Jeffrey McDonald will spend the rest of his life in prison. He's never getting out. None of these crazy appeals that he files will ever succeed, and he's exactly where he needs to be. Brett, I think you are absolutely correct. It is difficult for me to read the autopsy reports of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen to know that their father, their husband, and and the baby in Colette, his son, it is difficult for me to read that autopsy knowing that Jeffrey McDonald did this. And I agree with you. He was the one who did this. Just about no type of investigator, no no child walking through the crime scene could contaminate it to that degree where it told the story clearly of what happened with respect to all of the blood, all of the DNA, and the way fibers are found in the crime scene that Jeffrey McDonald created and then tried to cover up. 
It's actually a pretty straightforward story. CID did not so contaminate. They didn't even do a particularly bad job. This was just such a gruesome, messy scene. There was so much evidence to be collected. That was that was the issue. It was a complex crime scene for any law enforcement to face. And it was CID's poor luck that they they were the first ones there because they typically do not have to deal with triple murders. McDonald, like you said, he has had more appeals and more success in the appellate courts and gone up to the Supreme Court, something that most defendants can only dream of, to have this much legal, judicial attention on his case. He has had the benefit of every legal avenue for him to be able to be exonerated, and he has not been because he is not innocent. And there's not reasonable doubt about that. And I agree with you that the, the, you know, there are so many sad parts of this story for his children, his three children and his wife, but also for Helena Stokely, whose life was already very difficult at this time um, with addiction, mental illness. But for her to have been drugged into this McDonald case and to spend her own life wondering you know, what is true and what is not, when she herself already had difficulty with what was true and what was not due to, again, mental illness and um, drug addiction, that her, her life is, um, the way it ended is just devastating. And like you said, Brett, McDonald is a monster because he's unrepentant. And he's always been, and I don't think he will ever change. I mean, I'm all about forgiveness. I, I have no problem with forgiveness. But the first step to forgiveness is you have to admit what you did, and you have to ask for it. And McDonald hasn't done that, and he'll never do it because that's not who he is. And look, <laughs> I have so many things to say about McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and, and another thing that's really interesting about this case is the way McDonald turned prejudice on its head. It's it's sort of amazing and remarkable how he did this because so many innocent people were persecuted in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s. We talked about Timothy Kinsu, just this being different, right? And the Manson murders certainly made that happen to a certain extent. People who took certain drugs or were involved in certain movements were certainly questioned and people were skeptical of them. And in the 80s, you had the satanic panic. And McDonald grabs onto both of these. He's got Manson on one side, and he's got the satanic panic on the other side. But instead of using it as a prosecutor might in those days to prosecute an innocent person, he's using it as a defendant to try and push off his crimes that he committed on innocent people. And so many people have fallen for that over the years. And I admit, I was sucked into it. The story grabbed me the way it's grabbed so many people. And it took a long time for me to sort of escape from the, the like Svengali-like grasp that McDonald can can the spell he can cast on you. I mean, he really can do it with this story. But the story is bull. It is complete crap. And I know people get upset. Look, there's a lot of really thoughtful people in true crime, and a lot of people don't like it when you call people monsters or whatnot. Because, you know, I mean, he's a human being like everybody else. I totally get that. But we need to confront evil, folks. We need to be able to say there's, there are 
evil people in this world who prey on the innocent, and we see it all the time, and we've seen it a lot on this podcast, and if we can't confront that, then I don't know how we're going to defeat it, and McDonald, to me, is an example of that. He is he is Chris Watts 30 years before. I mean, that's all he is. He is just, there's, I don't have words for him, and and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but... Maybe one day McDonald will admit what he did, and you know that would be great if he did that. I don't expect it. I think he will die in prison with a lie on his lips that he's innocent, because he is not innocent. He is guilty. I think we've made it clear what we think, Brett. <laughs> I think we have. But if anybody has any questions, <laughs> and or look, if you disagree this with case, us, yeah, if you disagree with us, and and we love disagreement, we we respect disagreement. This podcast is never about you have to have one view on anything. That's just not what we do. That's not where we're where we are. We want to hear from you guys. We love your thoughts. I mean, some of you, you know, you disagree with us on the owl theory, and that's fine. This is a similar thing. We we love all y'all. We'd love to hear what you think. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. One thing I want to say, because I know we'll get this, there are things we did not talk about in this case because we did not want to spend the rest of the year talking about this case. This case, you talk about rabbit holes. You can you can talk about this case for the rest of your life. As Alice said, incredibly litigated case, tons of evidence, lots of different books written on this case, lots of different weird things. One thing I would remind you of is something we talked about in our first episode. There are always going to be things in cases that are inexplicable, that are difficult, if not impossible to explain because we weren't there. You know, we can't, we can't watch it on video to see everything that happened. And I always go back to that Manson family murder, which I think is appropriate here, that pair of glasses that Manson held on to for a long time. Nobody could, nobody could explain where those glasses came from that were, in, that were at the murder scene. And we still to this day don't know where they came from. And that's the kind of thing. And there may be things in this case where you're like, well, what about this? I don't know about that. You know, whatever that is, I don't know what to tell you about it. We might just not have had time to go over it. But I think compare whatever whatever your question is to the mountain of evidence here against McDonald. And just think, does it overcome that? Is it a silver bullet? And if it's not, it's probably just something ancillary. Is probably something that can be explained, but we may not have the explanation. And we talk about reasonable doubt a lot, and there's a reason we put that word reasonable in front of it. It's not all doubt. It's not we have to know every single thing that happened every second of the crime in order to convict someone. We have to look at the evidence and decide. When we look at this evidence, does it show us what happened? And, you know, we talked about puzzles before. At some point, when you're putting together that jigsaw puzzle, a piece falls into place where you know what you're looking at, and there may be holes left in the puzzle, and you might get to the end and be missing a piece, but you still know what you're looking at, and that's an absence of reasonable doubt, and that's what we have here. There is so much evidence against McDonald, there's no doubt, no reasonable doubt, that he committed these crimes. But, as we said, if you want to disagree with us on that, I'm shoot sorry, us I'm an only email. laughing because you I mean, you just said well, we we welcome all thoughts, and you're like, we do. but you're wrong. You may be wrong, but we still welcome your thoughts. We welcome your thoughts. We welcome your comments. We want to hear about it. We want to address things. I mean, it's a great case. 
It really is. And and I could talk about this case. I really could talk about this case probably till the end of the year, but I'm not going to do that. Shoot us an email, prosecutorspod at gmail.com. Look us up on, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at prosecutorspod. And join us on Patreon. Comment on YouTube. Love you guys on YouTube and all your comments. By the point that this episode airs, I think we will be back from CrimeCon. So hopefully we got to meet a lot of you guys at CrimeCon. I'm sure it was awesome. I'm looking forward to it as we record this. But we got a lot of stuff left to do in the future. We want you guys to keep sending us great suggestions about cases we should cover. We were we covered this case because we got a bunch of suggestions about it. So, you know, keep sending those in. We want to hear from you. Well, Alice, do you have anything else before we sign off for today? Oh, that was a lot. That was a lot of evidence you just threw out there. Nothing more for now, but we really could talk about this case forever. So hit us up, talk to us some more, and we will look forward to it. I mean, it's a case that inspires passions for a reason, no doubt. So we'd love to hear from you guys. Keep leaving those five-star reviews. We will be back next week with a new case, new questions, and hopefully new answers. But until then... I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are the prosecutors. Yay! Hopefully we won't like Alienate a bunch of people. <laughs> do a lot. I think of people, most people do. Know a lot he's of people guilty. think it's. No, I think most people know he's guilty. Okay. And it's a testament to like McDonald's media machine that he has going because I always thought that CID did a bad job. Like I just assumed that was true, and then you look at the actual evidence, you're like, no, they didn't. They did a fine job. Yeah. showed up i know it just stuck around i think they would have talked to us as long as we wanted it to was talk. they they did stick around they were so that nice. one couple had such a nice setup they should what? Just do who are they uh, do they have a podcast i don't know i don't think so i think they're just two random people they had a nice setup